Hey everybody, it's Ian King, founder of King Sports International, author of a number of books and innovator of training methods used around the world. Today on The Huddle, we'll be talking about the walking lunge. Now I know a few of you have seen my writings about that in the past and we will come back and talk about that, but I have also on the call with me a number of my top coaches from around the world and we'll be getting their insights without putting too much of my thoughts out first and I'll come around the back. So... When we, when we look around us, we see the, the walking lunge would be one of, the, one of the most dominant exercises in the world at the moment. And it's been an interesting uh, journey, at least for myself, from a long-term perspective, having had 30-plus years of professional involvement and seeing it go from zero to hero with no questioning of its role or its intent. So I want to go back and, first of all, do a bit of a historical journey or an insight into the, the inclusion of the walking lunge in, in training. So I'm going to go, and, and I don't mean to insult my friend, my coach Mike, uh, when I say one of the older members on the call, but when I say older, I'm talking about your, your time in the industry, Mike. So how many years have you been involved professionally, uh, Mike? Uh, 26 years, now 27. And you started out as an athletic trainer in, in the US? That's correct. And then after how many years, you then phase more into the physical preparation? So, Mike, you were an athlete trainer for quite a few years? I started... Yeah, I was an athletic trainer from uh, 19... Oh, gee. Um, 1989 until 19... Actually, probably early 2000s. Um, was straight athletic training. Um... And then towards the end of the 90s, started doing more strength and conditioning, as we call it here in the States, uh, and then meeting you in 1998, and in 2003, taking on full-time duties um, as a physical preparation or a strength and conditioning coach. So, Mike, the reason I'm going to you first is because of all the coaches on the call, you're probably one of the best to speak from historical perspective um, and I'll certainly be adding to this part of the discussion, but take me back. Where, where, where did it all begin as far as your observations? What was the original use of walking lunges from your experience and your observation? What was the, what was the role of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a walking lunge or a, even the lunge, for that matter, um, back when you were early in your career? Oh, gee, probably earliest earliest thing I can think of in, in my career was um, the advent of the, uh, the functional training movement. Uh, anything that resembled what someone might do in either their daily activity or in their sport was then mimicked in the uh, mimicked in the weight room, um, and then it's just it's gone on because nothing ever stays the same. It's nothing in, in terms of today's trends um, is is good enough. There always has to be a, an extra bell and a whistle. So you, you saw it grow from. Uh, from a static lunge to a dynamic lunge to a walking lunge to a lunge with a twist to a lunge with an opposite twist to a lunge with um, with a wall take a lunge with a ball a lunge I mean it just go, it, it goes on and on to the point of, of circus tricks and um, and comedy shows. That's a great summary. So looking back for myself in the early 80s I, I saw reference to a walking lunge in basketball training at college level in the US and that was about it. There was always the, the lunge in strength training. If you go back to, you know, in the, in the 70s and the 80s, um, probably, for example, Keys of the Inner Universe, Bill Pearl's book, um, lunges were featured in that. 
and a few variations of the lunges, etc. So pretty much the two roles for lunges from, from, the, from the early 80s were some specific sports on court training to uh, a, a pretty popular mainstay in, in, in uh, bodybuilding training. So that was pretty much it. So the, the lunge got out of the bag, well and truly got out of the bag, and as Mike indicated, it's just been a, 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 a litany of how can we make it uh, different, esoteric, and, and more weird than it was before. So we've covered, in a, in a brief sense, the history in terms of very low-level low uh, involvement in sports training, more of involvement in the bodybuilding strength training environment as far as a, just a static or a dynamic lunge, and the walking lunge only in some sp- specific sports on, on, on court training that I've referred to. Does anybody else have any historical observations about the lunge or the walking lunge before we move on to the next point? I have some historical observations about from the bodybuilding perspective about the walking lunge. Yeah, fantastic, John. So take it away. So, John, just to remind our, our listeners, John's coach out of California with KSI Coach there is a, a fairly solid involvement in, in bodybuilding and physique development. Go ahead, John. So you have certain bodybuilders that had the first kind of new thing, like uh, you have Samir Benut who had the first Christmas tree in his back, and that set a standard. And then you had Rich Gaspari, who was the first bodybuilder to have the shredded glutes. And then after that, that became the standard. So when Rich Gaspari was asked, you know, what he does to get that, when, you know, obviously the answer is just, you know, dieting and training hard. He mentioned that he did walking lunges, and back in that day, you know, not a lot of male bodybuilders or even male trainers would do walking lunges because it was considered more of a female exercise, but after he said that, then, you know, everybody kind of jumped on the bandwagon and started doing walking lunges in the attempt to get shredded glutes. Fantastic addition to our historical insights into the history of the walking lunge. If there's anyone else to share before we move on. I've got one. Go ahead, Mitchell. Mitchell Katondra out of Australia, KSI coach. I've just got one. When I, when I was in my teens and I was growing up and I was watching um, bodybuilders train and um, semi-professional athletes train in the area where I trained, I, I note when it came to the lunge and walking lunges, they were often and you'll probably go down this path in a sec, but they're often done at the end of training. They were very rarely done at the beginning of training or without you know, the body being high joint temperature, the knees being at high joint temperature, etc. Uh, and they were done in a fairly limited capacity in a pretty generic manner, whereas obviously now we're seeing lunges done in warm-ups, etc. But just from a historical perspective, if I go back 15 um, plus years ago, I do recall it always being at the end of training doing lunges, not at the start. And what sports were that in particular, Mitchell? Um, so back then, this was just for bodybuilders to get big. This was for some martial arts um, used in martial arts. A lot of guys there were boxing and kickboxing as well. Excellent. So we definitely will be touching upon the timing of the walking lunge. So anyone else with something to add to the history of walking lunges? Exactly. I do, yeah. Go ahead, Carl. Carl, Sherry, another Australian case I coach. Despite his accent. It's confused. So, again, bodybuilding. So when I was growing up, my dad was a bodybuilder and I was offering the stuff. And Tom Platts, Mr. Legs, would go through his stuff. And, and lunges were obviously a part of that. But it was, again, far more loaded. So a lot of uh, barbell work. And late in the workout, 
But if you also look at Tom Platt's, his flexibility was phenomenal and he spent a lot of time stretching. So that would be his warm up. And then obviously he would load through his various training for his legs. But the, the, the runs would be a part of that in the, the strength session, definitely not as a warm up. So historically, yeah, historically that was the, the set. And I suppose from a martial arts point, a lot of the places that relied solely on body weight, they'd do a lot of those. I guess you'd be in a walking sort of squat in position to load the thighs, not necessarily like the walking lunge you see today. So there would be ways to load the legs, but not in, the, I guess, the current trend of the, the walking lunge with the, the stress on the knee. So there was definitely some loading of the legs, but a, a, a very different view. So where it actually came from, the, the modern trend of it, I'm not 100%, and I look forward to to finding out and the reason why and how it could serve us well. It's interesting. Fantastic. And I do know someone else was was wanting to share. Yeah, Ian, I was first introduced to this, uh, to walking lunges and warm-up in university. In my university days, all of a sudden people were telling me, the research says, the science says that we need to be doing this in our warm-ups. And it then... When I could see it then over the years then get into the personal trainers and the strength and conditioning coaches as we call them in North America and now it's to the point where the sport coaches are now implementing them it's coming through however that route went it's now the sport coaches are dictating that and all of the, all the while none of these people have ever experienced this themselves in their sporting years and seen a cause effect relationship on their bodies and where that would put them at their ages now. That's an excellent point. And one of the reasons I've selected this as a topic to discuss in the huddle was I describe or liken the walking lunges as, as an epidemic, um, not unlike, say, the AIDS virus, where it's just a, its ability to sweep the world has been phenomenal. Uh, it it's really has permeated so many levels of sport and training in a relatively short period of time with nobody asking appropriate questions. And as Ryan also indicated then, the people who are giving it uh, typically have never done it, at least never done it to, to the volume or intensity that they, they're, they're getting others to do it at. Which I guess leads me to the, the question that someone raised in the discussion there before about you know, where did this new population trend come from? So what I have seen is that a number of people who have popularised it in their writings... Uh, and I know they don't train, and I know they, they definitely didn't do this training in, in their formative years. So the point one of our coaches made before about being prescribed, if I can use that that word, by coaches who've never done it themselves to that extent is, is a great insight into one of the challenges that's contributing to this um, unsubstantiated epidemic. So recently I wrote an article, uh, a blog about walking lunch, and... I got the usual responses to get from the level of intelligence that often, often trolls the internet. Um, apparently I was a Muppet and there was a few other things. Um, I was just being sensationalist. Uh, it was just the usual negativity that you get on the internet along with a few people who did actually get some genuine value. But you know, let's put aside all the, all the what I would call the um, brain-dead people on the internet and just go to the core of the matter. When I go onto a sporting venue, when I walk onto a sporting field, when I, when I walk onto a, a training court, when I turn on a, a TV and watch a sporting event and I see athletes doing the walking lunge in the warm-up at all ages, at all sports and at all levels of qualification, 
it is uh, one of the greatest tragedies in modern sport and it does motivate me to speak out about it in, in, enough to even to put aside all those people who have some interesting um, not so positive comments to make because my, my belief is that do I want my children to go out and be exposed to a coach who asks them to do a walking lunge and a warm up uh, the answer is very, very clearly no. Uh, does it happen? The answer is yes. Uh, you know, as recently as a few weeks ago, uh, one of my children was in a warm-up and they turned around and looked at me and shook their head because they were expected to do this in their warm-up. By, I would suggest, uh, as one of the cases indicated, by young coaches who didn't do this when they were at that age. They've got no idea what they're doing, but it's the trend and everyone else is doing it. We're in an area of the world, and I can't comment whether 100 years ago humans had more or less intelligence, but we're definitely in an area where people don't think. Uh, and I know that comment that humans don't think has been raised by many, um, many brighter men than myself through the, at least the last 100 years. But if you are listening to this and you have a brain, I encourage you to use it. Just because the majority of people are doing it at the moment doesn't mean you should be doing it. And I'm speaking on behalf of what I, what I fear are... The greatest victims in this is the, the children, the athletes under the legal age of adulthood, be it what your country 18 or less or whatever country uh, interpretation you're in. But I, I think it's, it's an absolute crime against children that they are expected to do activities in their training that actually do more harm than good. Now, when it comes to an adult athlete, well, that's a different discussion. Hopefully, they'd have a little bit more discernment. Knowing what I know about the desire of humans to conform, I know that's not the case. But certainly my heart goes out to the young athletes that are exposed to this absolute rubbish and expected to conform and, and do so in a desire to, 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 appease, to appease and please the adult that they're working with. And it is one of the most damaging trends around uh, at the moment. So let's go through and, and, and put some context to the discussion. So my question is to, to the coaches, under what circumstances... Would you believe the lunge or the walking lunge is a legitimate training method? So let's see. Let's go to the positive side and look at look at its role in a, in, in the upside before we come and absolutely tear up where it shouldn't be done. So who wants to go first on that one? Sure. Thanks, so Carl. It definitely has a, a role, as we mentioned before, in strength training. There is definitely a, a benefit to the lunge. So obviously, if there's any imbalance side to side, it's a way to load the leg individually somewhat so a, a semi unilateral very different variations of it that are great to load the body especially quad dominant movement so there's definitely positive aspects to using the lunge as long as you've got the appropriate range and the appropriate muscular control and then on that as well it's also as you've uh, brought to the world the as a control drill it's a, an excellent control drill to work on establishing uh, establishing good firing through the glute heels and the BMI Excellent points. Anyone to add? Just to add to that, in the world of martial arts, traditionally traditional karate's um, and those kinds of things, if you're from the use Japanese terminology, there's positions, there's stances called zenkutsudachi and kibidachi that um, are you people travel up and down, move forward and backwards, basically doing their kihon, which is basics, and they're in that part range um, lunge co-contraction position that new boy to the strength training world and they that's part of their stances that they've done for a long time so we know for sure over time that um just backing up what carl said that bringing that the the, the body in that position or the body moving in that 
partial range lunge position is, is definitely a wonderful thing, um, obviously during a, an appropriate warm-up throughout training, and it actually has some specific traits to, like I said, some traditional martial arts, um, in addition to some different slow speed, um, like rear foot on the back of the bench kind of movements, uh, like probably more of a single leg squat, etc. but um, they can also be used in training as well as a, as a stimulus if you see appropriate for the athlete or client that you're working with. Fantastic summary, especially from a specific sporting perspective, and that is important. Anyone else to add to that discussion? So it would appear that we've given a reasonable summary, but before we leave that, and that discussion pretty much summarised the legitimate role of lunges in the strength and bodybuilding genre as well as some specific sports... Whilst we're on this topic, let's get real clear about this. Now, as those who are well-read and those who have gone to the source would, would be familiar with my lines of movement concept, which I introduced in 1998 for the first time in full and since published many times um, without referencing, the challenge I have with anybody doing a, a lunging activity is ensuring that they are balancing that out with a hip dominant activity uh, as you know I introduced the concepts in the lower body particularly the quad and hip dominant concepts to ensure balance and if you have studied the concept and you understand how I, I gave definition to what constituted a hip dominant what constituted a quad dominant movement you would know that the lunge is at the far end of the continuum of quad dominant movements so not only is it ticking a box uh, of quad dominance but it's at the extreme end of the quad dominant movement so it, it is one exercise that is extremely, uh, adds another uh, dimension or another circumstance of aggravation to ensure that you're balancing it with hip dominance. So I'm certainly not against the lunge in, in the strength training environment. It's just uh, raises a greater challenge than, than you would imagine, perhaps, of creating balance. So what we've talked about there is the lunge used in the strength training environment. And the, the inference there is that the body's warm, um, the, the athlete is conditioned to the movement, etc. Um, it's progressively introduced. So what we will do for it is go from there to talk about where you shouldn't be doing the walking lunge. And when I when I wrote about this, I, I was pretty blat- uh, blanketly stated you stop, stop doing it. And even though that's a, a generalisation, I have no problems acknowledging that. If people are going to be so dumb that they can't use their discerning brain that they were given by their higher source to make informed decisions, if they're lacking that, they're, they're la- that degree of intelligence, then they should just stop doing it. Uh, it would be far better if they lacked the ability to think to just to stop doing it altogether than, uh, than be in a situation where they're just doing it without thinking. However, if you have got some intelligence that you're, cho- that you're willing to use, which appears to be a diminishing activity, or if you're willing to go against the grain and make your own mind up, then certainly there is a time and a place for it. So let's talk about when our coaches would think it'd be inappropriate to engage in the walking lunge. Who wants to start that one off? Sure, if no one else is, I'll jump at the line. So anywhere to start the session. So if you're starting your warm-up with a lunge, you haven't warmed or primed the joint. And the challenge there is the wear and tear on the joint. So... Ideally, if you were going to do them, you want to have 
the temperature raised in the body, and ideally the, you prime the joint of the knee, especially the patellofemoral joint, whereas when it's used as a warm-up, immediately the, that wear and tear. So if you were going to, it'd be better if you were warmed, you'd stretch to change the, the length and tension relationships around the knee, as you've obviously taught in your, your work before, and, and then it would be more acceptable because at least the body's prepared for it, whereas when you see the especially the kids, I was watching some the other day, and you know, they're five and six, and they're doing a walking lunge. It's, it's scary stuff. So there's that in terms of the wear and tear, and then there's also the execution of it. So you see them doing it, and they can barely balance, and they're falling over. So if it's going to be done, A, you want to be warm, and then B, you want to have appropriate control of the muscle, muscles involved, so the body travels in the line it's desired, whereas when you often see it done, the knees all over the place, the body's somewhere different. That's just doing the walking. Then when they throw in crazy arm gestures involved, like they've got no hope. So it's a it's a scary world we live in when they use that as a warm up. Yeah, my thoughts exactly. Anyone else to contribute? When shouldn't or what should you be doing in relation to the walking lunge? Well, definitely, definitely as as. We've spoken about with children. One of the concepts that people forget, and especially young people that are coming through in coaching these days, um, they, they haven't gone through any significant aging process themselves in their life, and they don't understand what happens to the body as you age. So when you get, you can get kids, you know, if you, you've written about before and talked about before, to do anything one day, and the next, if you cut their arm off, so to speak, it'll grow back the next day. So to to have the justification that yeah, kids are lunging and they're okay, you don't understand the long-term ramifications of that. You don't understand the hormone uh, hormone levels that children have. You don't understand the, um, the softness in kids' connective tissues and bones at that age, but you don't understand the impact that that has until they're 20, until they're 30, until they're 40, um, and shortening those connective tissues and doing that to the joint, as Carl was just speaking about, with being children. Little kids aren't little adults, they're little children and they require um, different, they certainly require to move and play, etc. But doing a lunge with them, um, while it might seem the easy way out, like you think you know what you're doing, you're actually destroying this child and you have absolutely no idea about it. Fantastic summary. Someone else? Yeah, Ian, I think an obvious one that's out there, but it's silly that how many athletes come to me and, and coaches still insist they do this is when you're in pain, when it causes inappropriate pain in the joint uh, and in other areas the I've had athletes tell me their coaches is, is insisting they continue on, you're not doing it right, so fix it they don't give them answers but these are the people that are uh, like you said before, they're in charge, they say who plays, who doesn't so there's tremendous pressure on that individual no, I actually, along that line, I actually heard of an athlete recently who, who's telling one of my athletes his, uh, the solution to his, his um, sore quads was you just had to do some more walking lunges. Um, yeah, so, you know, he's a, he's a, a junior athlete. The, the, so I still hold an adult responsible for passing on that, that education. And so that's something we will come back to. So anyone, any other coach have something to add about when and, and what not to do? Yeah, just to, to add what onto what Ryan was saying, and I think it goes back to even a, a larger um, 
a larger problem. It, it could probably even be another discussion for another huddle. But um, what constitutes what constitutes a good warm up? Um, I think the state of the industry today is you're a good trainer if you can really cause someone a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort, a lot of sweating, uh, a lot of heavy breathing. And if those are the criteria for a good warm up, I guess the, the walking lunge is maybe a, a, a good um, a good exercise. Um, by that definition, but in terms of, as we're noting here on, on the discussion tonight, on the call tonight, um, it does not constitute in the best interest or the best health uh, of, of the athlete. So it's, it's a, it is a scary road when we figure that the coaches of today, um, their definition of a good warm-up is to hurt someone, uh, or their definition of being perceived as a good trainer or a good coach is to cause a lot of pain and discomfort in, in your athletes. Uh, it, it's a pretty sad and dangerous road. And that's very accurate what you said because if you did want to cause muscle damage, it's a pretty good exercise to engage in, especially in high volume because the the muscles are stretched out and they're going to work pretty hard to, to achieve it. And yeah, you are going to get sore. So it ticks that box, but you know the appropriateness of that and the, the appropriateness of that in the warm up is a whole new ball game. Which brings us to the next point where we're again in an era and, and how the world got this unintelligent, I'm not really sure, where something like the walking lunge is considered a stretching exercise. And I'll, I'll bite my tongue and see if anyone else wants to comment on that first. It's because they have a lack of flexibility, so when they do the lunge, they feel a stretch. So we, I don't really understand that there's a relaxation component to stretching. Yeah, so <laughs> when when they do a lunge and you know they, they feel that stretch in their you know glute hamstring tie-in, they think that they're doing a stretch. Yeah. So the sensation of being at the end of their range is defined as a stretch, it's, and therefore the, the assumption that it's actually going to improve the flexibility. So I, I, I get that. I get that from an end user. But I don't quite understand how an inverted commas professional would come to that conclusion, but they apparently do. Anyone, can anyone give some insights on that? I don't know how they come to that conclusion, but what I do know is that in this, you know, you've talked about it, that people just becoming experts because if you're on the internet and you've got a good marketing program or you hire a good marketing consultant, you can perceive yourself as an expert very quickly with a complete lack of competence in, in sport and training. So people when they want to sell things often just tell you what you want to hear not what you need to hear and a lot of these people say if you walk in lunge I've seen I don't know how they come to the conclusion so I understand I'm not answering your question Ian but I understand how people come to these um, that they, they promote these things because um, oh I can get someone to lunge and I can get them to stretch at the same time it's kind of like a two for one now we know that doesn't exist but there's enough people out there who lack um brain power to draw that conclusion themselves so they buy into it and the person becomes popular and they continue to damage the world they, they steal from the world instead of heal, heal it and that's a very very good point because we are definitely in an era especially the, the decade post 2000 where the model of success has been defined as a person with the, the, the greatest ability to market themselves and that's typically associated with a with incompetence from a content perspective. They're incompetent from a content perspective. In other words, they can't coach, haven't coached, 
and secondly that they're they're probably cutting some corners to get the sensational um, like you know how can I hurt someone in a short period of time and therefore they'll conclude that the program is a good program so we are definitely being challenged by the dominant mode of success defined in this in this marketed era this internet market era and and, and I can only hope that competence will return to the market and people will not simply be drawn to the the loudest vessel uh, making uh, you know with nothing inside it so any other thing any other coaches to add to our discussion of the the role of the walking lunge as a inverted commas stretching exercise or what you shouldn't and when you shouldn't do it definitely so as Mitchell stated the, the, the trend for instant gratification with the world so that society as a whole that those who are coaching and recommending it a probably don't have the patience to you know have a 30 40 minute pre-training stretch so they don't actually have that flexibility themselves to share with the world and and if there's, the seven-minute abs isn't fast enough, they want the five-minute abs. So if you can have the, the five-minute warm-up where you've done 12 varieties of lunge to attain your flexibility, or at least in theory, um, that's what people want. And then the coaches want to give that because they want to please the people and, and not actually do what's best for them, which isn't always what they want to hear, but it may be in their greatest and best good. So definitely a challenge. Yeah, plus there's the whole um, whenever a client isn't, you know, Every second of the training session, they're afraid that they're not burning enough calories. So when they're doing a variety of walking lunges and all that stuff, you know, they're moving. So they figure, oh, I'm burning calories. I'm, you know, going to achieve my weight loss goal because I'm doing this exercise. So it's the fear of, you know, lack of movement from the client. And then the trainer just capitalizes on that. And it goes a step further on that. The lunge has a place, for sure, whereas even the place has been jeopardised, like the intention of it and the loading of it, whereas now, rather than just do a lunge, say a barbell lunge, now you've got to be doing a lunge while on a cable machine, doing like a, a rotated bicep curl. So you don't even load the, the leg to its potential. So you just get this, this whole crazy range, attempting to train everything, and ultimately just doing many things poorly. So not only is the warm-up confused with the lunge, also the execution of the, the strength component is also confused and highly ineffective. Yeah, that, that's a discussion in itself, isn't it? Yeah, and that has to do with pleasing the client because you're. it's kind of like faking trying hard. So instead of you know doing an all-out set of lunges that are heavy enough to for you to get a training response or to get really tired they have to do them so light because they're adding in a lateral raise and a rotation but at the same time that they're doing that they're going so light on every movement that they don't really have to try that hard and they're also um, not getting the same time under tension because they're doing another movement while they're waiting to do the other movement so it just kind of doesn't serve anybody to mix the movements like that. Plus, both movements involved aren't going to get done as well as they could be because you're just throwing in a bunch of stuff at the same time. Some fantastic points. Thank you, John. So we've got a KSI client on the, on the, on the call. David, can you hear us? David, do you have any questions or any comments for us to the coaches or, or similar... 
junior sport of recent uh, times. And we're finding from under 12s to under 14s, the walking stretches or lunges used as a warm up exercise and a warm down exercise. I know ever since Angus has been working with Ian, uh, he simply refuses to do it and he's playing at state level um, uh, training football. But these uh, concepts and exercises are being promoted by the junior coaches. And I can only understand, I think that they are being um, promoted by the associations that give the qualifications to the coaches. So what? And then again this morning, you watch uh, anywhere from uh, young females to middle aged women at a commercial gym being done, doing the same thing with kettlebells and uh, these log looking things while they're doing uh, walking lunges. So appreciate those insights, Dave. It's uh, simply just frightening. uh... And so we're hearing from someone who's, like I am, uh, a parent with a kid that's involved in sport. And and it's tough for me after so many years of being involved in sport to to turn around, despite all my efforts of of openly sharing educational and and sharing some phenomenal concepts with the world to, to see my children every sport at every level be exposed to such crap that it, you just want to pull them out of sport. It's, it's, that, it's that damaging to them. So I know, um, listening to David, he's, he has very similar feelings. That oh, It's one thing to say, well, it's OK, and it's pro-, you know, but when, when, when it's your family that's involved, when, when the world's trends are damaging your children, um, you know, hopefully you'll get more of a vested interest in, in what's going on in terms of um, anyone listening to, to this audio. So, as we wrap on this this topic for today's huddle, any other comments that any coach wants to make before we wrap? Yeah, Ian, I think going back to, to the difficulty that coaches have or even young athletes have, it's grown to such a point where the, the walking lunge and the warm-up that the athletes are doing this at collegiate levels and likely professional levels in some cases – that, or in many cases, that those people look up to to how they're doing it, uh, and if they're not doing what they're doing, you know, staying up with the Joneses, then they're they're falling behind. So there's that whole issue, and then also the I see that most people are doing the quad. They're in quad dominant sports. They're already quads are flaring, and then they're adding in this walking lunge aspect. That's demolishing the quads even more and it's just setting them up for for these injuries that you're talking about it's like a, a double dose that's a very valuable point and that's something we we haven't even gone on to talking about is uh, you know the role of specificity in sport subject to itself but that is a, a that is a, a, a very good point you know the reality of the trending of injuries in sport these days is that we are making the pharmaceutical industry very happy we are making everybody involved in sports medicine, um, injury rehabilitation very happy. We are guaranteeing the, the production of anti-inflammatories and painkillers for many, many decades to come. We are contributing to the commercial profitability of joint replacement companies. And, and none of these trends that I'm describing are ones that put a smile on my face, but obviously 
you know, there may be um, perhaps the majority of physical preparation coaches think that it's good that the that that athletes have more injuries or that the, they have to use more therapists or that they have to take more drugs to maintain their pain levels. You know, maybe I'm not in touch with the majority, but I certainly hope that's not the case. No, I definitely a comment for those having been in situations where the coach, so I've been out of soccer training for kids, and the coach has said outright, static stretching is bad for you and it will risk injury. The only thing you need to do is um, like a functional stretch. So test it out for yourself. I've had um, teams come in and had them show me what they do for a warm-up. They've done that and then gone about a task, and then I've given them the comparison go through a very basic stretch and for them to come to their own conclusion and, and every time um, it's, it's pretty simple they can intuit and feel what's better for their body so ask yourself the question what feels better and, and compare it and, and then come to your own conclusion within, within a period of time and that way you can uh, go with your own intuition so when a coach tells you something you don't necessarily agree with you can make a better choice you can either choose not to do it or if you're going to have like if you have to conform per se you can make sure you've done the appropriate things beforehand to at least minimise the, the wear and tear on your body. Some great guidance, and, and as both you and Ryan indicated, when the professionals do it, when the physical preparation coaches at a professional level are doing it to their athletes and the younger ones see it, the, the sporting organisations see it, and they just mimic it without thinking, then it sets it up for, for massive challenges. So if a, uh, if a young athlete, God forbid, is in a situation where... They're in a group and they've been told to do the walking lunch and the warm-up. What are some of the strategies that you can implement to save their souls? Uh, and I, you might think I'm being dramatic, but you know we've talked about the damage to young children, and I, I just cringe when I see you know the, the one knee going this way. The, you know, the, the, the incredible things that you see when you get weak kids doing a walking lunch in a warm-up—it's just scary stuff. Uh, and if you took a, a poll and an honest poll of them at that time, they'd tell you how they're feeling. It wouldn't be a good thing, but. As I said, tragically, if in that situation, number one, don't do it. Um, number two, if you wanted to do it, um, minimise the range that you're using. In other words, fake it. And I know that's um, it's a terrible thing to teach an athlete, but uh, you know, it's a ch- which is the worst of the two evils? Any other suggestions, coaches, on how a young athlete in a in a situation of conformity might be able to manage that? If you know it's coming, you can warm up beforehand. When asked to do it, he'll simply do a a walk through streets with a high leg leg lift. But he blatantly refuses to do any lunges. So he's going to make a modification to see if that can keep people happy and hopefully everyone will be happy and they'll move on. Yeah, he's been asked to come aside and explain why. Um, And he's even offered to have you down talking to the coach in one representative team and the uh, the coach accepted Angus's uh, response fantastic well, it's, it's great if, if the young athlete can negotiate that with the coach that's a fantastic outcome Carl so if you know it's coming given that it tends to be the same thing done all the time um, you can warm the body up a little bit beforehand and you can stretch appropriately before going so at least you've established the rain and you're minimising the wear and tear and then ideally, if you can get away with not doing it, great. But if you feel the need to conform or in a situation where you, you feel the need to do it, at least you're minimising that wear and tear. So there's definitely strategies. And then 
working within the range you have control. So not feeling the need to keep up with everyone else around you. So only go to where you can keep the, you know, the joint in the appropriate lines rather than body going this way, head that way, knee this way and all that sort of crazy stuff. So just keeping it, keeping it safe and nothing else. If you're going to do it, minimise the damage you're going to do. So we've talked about how the athletes can change their situation. And, and as far as I'm concerned, the catalyst, the cause is the professionals who give the exercise. So what can we recommend? If, if there was a professional listening to this and, 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 and if there's a glimmer of hope that they, that they might seek to improve themselves rather than to be clones of the 95%, what recommendation would you give them as far as seeking guidance? And, and Because at the end of the day, you know, if they're going to their professional organisation, reading their professional journals or whatever it is, I'm not sure where the source is coming from. Maybe you know, some, some functional training book written by a bloke who's never trained. Um, you know, what guidance can we give to these people who are so critical in, in influencing how our children are trained or how people are trained globally? What, what advice would you give professionals? I've got some generic advice. And it's, uh, as you've shared a lot of times before for them, the first thing is, as Earl Nightingale said in the 1950s or 60s in that famous audio program, The Stranger's Secret, he said, the opposite of courage is not cowardice, it's conformity, doing what everyone else does. So stop being a conformist, stop being a 95%er and start being a 5%er. Um, and what that means is look around what everyone else is doing, understand that most of the time it's not the best thing that there is to do. If you look at athletes and ask them are they as injury-free as they want to be, generally speaking, no. Are they as flexible as they want to be? Generally speaking, no. Are they as fast as they want to be? Generally speaking, no. So understand that most of the stuff you're doing, if you're looking from outside sources and influences that are mainstream to get your results, you're not serving the athlete at all. So stop being a 95%er and start being a 5%er and perhaps listen to the huddle a little bit more. Fantastic. Any other pointers? To actually do it, so if they actually went through their own warm-ups and did you know, 101 ways to do a lunge in, in 10 different directions and use as many planes as they can at one time and then and feel what happens to their body and then they go the opposite way, warm up and, and, and stretch appropriately and then feel the difference through the training process and just come to a conclusion as simple as that. Now, I imagine if they're in touch with their body, they feel that difference within the session. But if not, given a period of time. So I recall from personal experience, again, I followed different paths beforehand and... and Ian said to me, give it, give it a three months. If you find there's no benefit, don't do it anymore. Because ultimately, the body knows. And intuitively, we know. It's just whether we choose to bury our head in the sand or not to conform. So be honest with yourself. Come to your own conclusion and do what you feel is best for you and those that you're serving. Fantastic summary. So this is typically what happens tonight. Making these observations based upon, um, in particular since about 1998 when I came out and I, I shared a lot of the conclusions that I'd reached in the prior 20 years coaching. And what happened was, you know, I said, taught lines of movement, speed of movement, three-digit timing, control drills, body weight exercises in strength training, etc., and people basically said the same thing as uh, the total comments I got when I said on, on the recent blog, stop doing the walking lunge, you know, but that I was an idiot, that I was a fool, that you couldn't do it because of this, you couldn't do it because of that. And within about 10 years, that all become mainstream. There aren't too many of those things that I, sh- that I shared in 98 that aren't now mainstream. Of course, the source is unknown because of the, um, 
the integrity or the lack of in the uh, physical preparation industry in, in, in the internet marketing circles, the publishing circles. But the bottom line is everything I teach will ultimately come to fruition. So it'll go through what's described as three stages of truth where you get rejected and then ridiculed and then everyone will say, well, it's always been this way. Of course we knew this. So you can be a conformist and continue doing damaging things like a walking lunge and a warm-up uh, until the world, uh, the 95% stop doing it and then you'll never feel out with them. Uh, and in that period of time, you'll continue to do more damage to your body or you can start thinking for yourself now. It'll probably hurt a little bit from a from a social dynamics point of view. You know, if you're a physical preparation coach that, that didn't do what everyone else is doing, it might might feel a bit awkward. You know, the pain of that. Um, if you're an, you're an athlete, the conflict that you might have to engage in with the coaches when they realise that you're not conforming. But let's say in 10 years' time the trend has been shot down completely, and everybody's an expert, and of course they knew all the time that you shouldn't do that. Um, and you want to know, what, did I go on for another 10 years after I heard this audio or did I take this opportunity to learn a lesson about listening to myself, listening to my body and, and, and trusting my own intuition over above the powers of conformity? So that's what's going to happen. And, uh, you know, I might be being optimistic about 10 years, but you know, it might be 20, it might be 30, it might be 40, but the longer it takes, the more damage you'll do to your body in the interim. And that's, for me, that's... That's what matters. It's about the individual and the and the impact on the body. I'm really less interested in the ego of the coach. I'm less interested in the commercial uh, profitability of someone positioning themselves as an expert on the subject. I'm more interested in what it's doing for you, uh, the individual, and particularly the young athlete, who's you know we 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 don't expect them to make decisions as much for themselves. Unfortunately, we expect them to be more compliant. So they're the people I'm speaking to and I'm giving you an opportunity to save yourself in this instance and saving your knees and your lower back uh, in terms of the impacts from the creating a quad, quad dominant imbalance. But in the bigger picture, the things you'll learn from stepping out of the conformity circle will serve you so much in so many other areas. So I want to thank all the coaches for being in the huddle today. Thank Dave for joining us. Trust today has been of value and... Um, at the end of the day, we're quite happy for people who throw the stones because I go to bed at night knowing that when I give this advice to somebody, it, it improves their life. It will, will, will save their body. And, you know, the stones are just something that that you get in the early days of bringing to the attention people things that, that anyone who's a conformist is scared that others might you know, crawl out of the crab bucket, and that's just the way it goes. So... I, I trust that the, at least some of the people listening to this program will um, have, take advantage of the opportunity I'm giving you here and we're giving you here to to be, be a better athlete and to have less injuries. So thanks for everyone for being on the call.